crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello and welcome back to the Watch Jerusalem podcast. I'm Brent Nuktagal from here in Jerusalem, Israel. On today's program, we're going to be talking with archaeologist Christopher Reams about a brand new discovery that was released to the public this Thursday about the earliest alphabetic script that's ever been discovered in Israel. This was found at Tel Lachish uh, in between uh, Jerusalem and the coast towards Gaza. And we'll have a full uh, interview for about 20 minutes with him. He's written an article based on the journal report of that discovery. So you'll want to wait around for that. But before I get to that, I'm going to do something that I don't normally do. And that is talk a little bit about some feedback that we have received. And also the latest edition of Watch Jerusalem magazine. The latest edition that went to the press and that should be hitting your mailboxes very soon. I went to the press a couple of weeks ago. It's entitled, or at least the cover article is, Against All the Gods of Egypt. And if you haven't, or if you aren't subscribed to our free magazine, which again can go to you wherever you are in the world, this is a, an amazing uh, magazine that brings you the latest in biblical archaeology. It's different to what we do online. Some of the content will eventually appear online uh, that goes into the magazine. However, it's just really nice to get a physical copy uh, of the magazine itself. And so if you can get that, uh, go ahead to uh, uh, go to our Watch Jerusalem website and, and up on the top right corner, you'll see a literature tab and then you can request your edition of the magazine. This lead article by Chris Eames uh, is really just a, a wonderful study of the different plagues uh, that God brought upon the Egyptians and the purpose of those plagues. And as the title says, against all the gods of Egypt, how it was in part a way for God to liberate the Israelites uh, from Egypt and pagan uh, gods of, of the Egyptians. And so you'll want to read that, even if you haven't got this latest edition of the magazine. Uh, our art department went to work on this article, including the cover, and it's absolutely beautiful. Uh, so you'll want to read that. There's also an article about the former prophets from our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flory, how history becomes prophecy, speaking of the value of studying the former prophets uh, in the Bible. And we also do break the story about Dr. Mazar's new book, The Monumental Four-Way Staircase of Herod the Great. This was the subject of a podcast a couple of weeks ago. We also have a bit of a, <clears throat> a more in-depth article about that, as well as the discovery of this 2,000-year-old gold ring that was incised with a menorah we have another a number a couple articles of course in there also but i'll leave a link for you to get the pdf of that since you've missed the boat in terms of this issue and receiving the print uh, version of it um, but you can sign up for the next version that is due to go to the press in about a month just a little bit of feedback now related to some of the podcast. You'll notice that we've been doing some podcasts on YouTube as well as the just the audio. And I'm trying to not neglect the audio audience. And so uh, today's actual interview doesn't have any uh, video with it. Uh, so that'll just be purely audio uh, with Chris Eames about his latest article. 
But we do have a YouTube page that we are trying to uh, put the podcast on. We are putting the podcast on as well just to increase the traffic. And, and it seems to be doing that. Uh, this latest uh, podcast from last week, the Red Sea and Bible Prophecy, I was down in a lot for that. And that's already got about uh, 1,800 listens or views all up, which is good. Our YouTube channel is doing really well. Uh, April for April, we're only halfway through and we've already eclipsed the total hours watched on the channel uh, from any previous month. We've had 900 hours watched of our content on YouTube for the past uh, 15 days. And so that will likely increase uh, for the next uh, half of April. So that was good to see. Uh, just a bit of feedback. Um this is from somebody responding five days ago. I note how some modern historians try to downplay the parting of the Red Sea by saying that it wasn't the actual sea that was depicted, but a minor tributary or stream by a similar name. And this doesn't even relate at all, <laughs> apart to the program at all about the Red Sea and Bible prophecy, but it does relate to the Red Sea. And I just wanted to use that to let you know that we are coming out with a big feature article very soon, perhaps in the next week or so, uh, about the Red Sea crossing. If you are interested in this, you might have noted a Patents of Evidence uh, documentary that came out recently on the Red Sea parting and the miracle of the Red Sea. And it's a two-part, two-hour each uh, uh, documentary. And we um, discuss that in this article, uh, Chris Eames does. We've what, both watched it a couple of times. Um, and we present what we would say is the biblical account uh this this documentary while it is brilliantly done and brilliantly made it only produces two options uh, something like what this man is saying a bit of lakes or a small tributary crossing which doesn't fit with the biblical account and then a gulf of aqaba uh account of the red sea crossing uh which which we say uh the bible description fits more with a suez crossing which i think it, the the documentary series gave that uh, option, which was the traditional location of the crossing of the Red Sea, about 18 seconds. It didn't attempt to discredit that at all. However, I think this article is about 7,000 words. So if you are interested in the location of Mount Sinai, what the Bible says, uh, and what it doesn't say as well, as included with the Red Sea crossing and the symbolism of the Red Sea crossing as well, you'll look out for that article. This, this bit of feedback comes from the United States. It's related to the podcast Revealed, King's Herod's Great Four-Way Temple Mount Staircase. This is a wonderful podcast, and I just want to thank you and all the staff that put this together. It made me very happy to see the history and circumstances of God's miracles that have afforded these relationships to Mr. Armstrong and Mr. Flurry. Speaking of the, the fact that Mr. Flurry and, and Mr. Armstrong were heavily involved in the uh, discovery and then the publishing of this discovery of Dr. Elot Mazar and her grandfather, Benjamin Mazar. Thank you again for everyone involved in the creation of this wonderful message. It's a really good video. Very positive, uh, he writes. So you're welcome. And if you haven't seen that, that's up to about 1,800 views. I think I talked about that already. Yeah, on uh, on Facebook, on uh, YouTube and, um, and SoundCloud. And I don't have the iTunes stats right now, so that's probably an extra few hundred people have listened to that. Also, this is a more general comment to the podcast. I listened to a few of your podcasts, really good stuff. I requested my limit of books. Thank you. I hope to find more information in them. 
I've been trying to track down the tribe of Dan through history. I was able to track them in the same way as you, you to Ireland and Denmark, also from the rivers of the Black Sea, are also named after them. I wasn't aware of the connections to the other tribes to of the other tribes to Europe. When I look online to find who the tribes were, it seems they always show the tribes as being a different so-called races. Thank you for your work. So we have numerous uh, podcasts on the lost tribes of Israel. Of course, if you want uh, text for your education uh, about um, some of the proofs, most importantly, who uh, biblical Israel is today, not just the tribe of Judah here in the state of Israel, uh, the United States and Britain in Prophecy is a wonderful book for you to read. It is the most popular book uh, ever written on the Lost Tribes Studies, and that was written by Herbert W. Armstrong. Another one here, I really enjoy listening to the Watch Jerusalem podcast and reading the material on the Watch Jerusalem website. The material provided has helped me know about David's palace, the tomb of the kings, Nehemiah's wall, Jeroboam Buller, and the latest discovery of the royal purple fabric. Thank you very much uh, for the high level of detail you provide on archaeology and explaining how the Bible plays a very important part in archaeological discoveries. So this was, I think it came just after we did the podcast about the discovery in the Timna mines, just north of a lot of uh, Royal Purple and the fabric on fabric there. And that's got about a, a thousand listens on YouTube and, and SoundCloud, which is good to report. Uh, just one more comment related to that, and then we'll get to this interview with, with Chris about the latest discovery of the earliest alphabetical inscription ever discovered in the land of Israel. I just listened to your podcast. It was excellent. Thank you. Ever since the Royal Purple find at Timna was publicized, I've been wondering if there was an even more direct connection between the textile fragment and the copper mining operation than simply royal overseers. And this is really interesting. This comment comes from somebody in the know. Uh, she writes, copper has long been in use as a mordant uh, which means causes dye stuff to fix to the fibers so the color doesn't easily wash out. So that's what copper is, is used for, apparently. Um, in particular, protein fibers like wool absolutely require their use, meaning copper is needed to go along with the dye so it can stick with wool. Copper can also be used in the dye stuff itself to shift the color by adding blue so a yellow dye would become green or a red-pink dye, a red-pink becomes purple. I think I've read somewhere that different processes on the Murex dye stuffs would result in several different colors, either a deep red, blue, or bright purple, and indeed the different period in which the, uh, the dye itself is oxidized uh, contributes to that color. I wonder if copper was part of the process then to fix uh, the color or shift it, or both. Then she writes, it's a time-honored tradition for manufacturers to visit their material suppliers and inspect the production facilities to ensure everything has been done on the up and up. It's what I did in several positions I've held over the years, sadly only to China and Vietnam, not to Edom. So she's saying that uh, copper is, is an element that is used often uh, in fixing uh, a, a dye uh, to the fiber so it doesn't wash out. And perhaps that was part of the reason why, um, well, perhaps uh, the copper mines in Timna, uh, the copper discovered there, 
and excavated there and, and produced there from the copper ore had a process, has, was part of the process in the actual um, coloration of, of fabrics, ancient fabrics. Interesting point. Don't have an answer for you, unfortunately, but maybe there is a bit more out there that we can look up for you to try and help you uh, determine whether that is the case. Thank you very much for those people that have written in to the podcast. If you would like to send any feedback, again, our email address is letters at watchjerusalem.co.il. But for now, I'm going to cross to the interview I did with Chris just on Friday. It's Sunday today. And we'll go through this latest discovery of the earliest alphabetical script ever discovered in Israel. This is Watch Jerusalem. Thank you for listening. Hello, Chris. Thank you for coming on the show today. Hello, Brent. Good to be here. So what can you tell us about this brand new discovery from Israel? Okay, well, this is an exciting discovery uh, but not so much just by by the look of it. If if you saw it in real life, it's just a just a very small uh, pottery piece. It's there's nothing too too impressive about it. On the one side, it's got a, uh, a a painted design from the original vessel that it was a part of. But the really interesting thing about this is what is on the inside uh, part of this pottery piece, and that's inked script. And so an inked pottery piece is called an ostracon, uh, a pottery piece with an inscription on it, on it an, an inked inscription. And that's what we have here. It's a partial inscription that was found at Tel Lachish. Lachish is uh, southwest of Jerusalem, uh, sort of between, equally between Gaza on the left and, and Jerusalem on the, on the right. Uh, southwest of Jerusalem, an Austrian team was excavating at Tel Achish in 2018, and they found this this uh, pottery fragment during that excavation, and we've only just heard about it now because it went to uh, the lab to be researched by a, a, a joint Israeli and Austrian team. They, on Thursday, released a paper of their findings, and so this is this has really made headlines around the world. Uh, this this discovery, which constitutes the earliest alphabetic script ever found in Israel, the earliest alphabetic script ever found in Israel. Uh, now, earlier alphabetic scripts have been found in ancient Egypt and in the Sinai Peninsula. These date to about 1800 BCE onwards, but the earliest alphabetic script within Canaan, within the southern Levant, within, within what became Israel, date to only about the 13th century BCE, the 1200s onwards. So, uh, as I think a lot of our listeners will know, this is, this is the script really built and developed in this area of Canaan and used by the Canaanites, by the Israelites, the Phoenicians, the Moabites, uh, really centered in this area. But uh, we have this missing timeline of the journey of the alphabet from Egypt and the Sinai Peninsula to where it became developed in the Holy Land. So it, up till now, it's sort of been left open to speculate as to what happened. How did this alphabet uh, sort of migrate into the Holy Land and develop from there and be, be the central script that was used in the Holy Land? Now, a prevailing belief was that the alphabet... 
uh, was sort of brought along by the Egyptians into the Holy Land around the 1200s BCE, probably as part of trade. And the, the, the Canaanite population, shall we say, sort of jumped on it and, and took it on as their own and developed it and used it from there. But what we see with this pottery fragment, this new one that's been discovered at Tel Lachish, is that the alphabet made it into the Holy Land some 200 years earlier, at least. Uh, ov- obviously, this is the this this pottery fragment attests to the the latest that we can place this uh, use of the alphabetic script. So we still don't know how much earlier it was being used in the Holy Land. So what we can see is that during the 15th century, which is the time period to which this uh, pottery piece dates, uh, around 1450 BCE, that date was arrived at by radiocarbon dating. Um, so the radio... And, and again... Right, so the, just the... If we could talk about the context of it, because that's the big deal, right, is is the, sure. the, the context in which this was found, because we can't have it necessarily a date specifically from the pot should, but I guess they were digging in a right. layer... Uh, at Tel Lachish that that predated Israelite settlement, it seems, or slightly before Israelite settlement of this area, and they arrived at this 1450 date, dating the strata in which this ostracon was found. Right. The, the dating for this pottery piece is uh, pretty key to, the, uh, to, to naming it as the earliest established use of the alphabetic script in in Canaan, and that's because there are some other uh, more debated fragments that that could have dated to this time period, but we just don't know, and so we can't do anything really with what we don't know. But the fact that this was found in a securely dated layer, again done by an Austrian team, they they excavated through this material, found pottery relating to this time period, and also carbon dated. Uh, the layer as well. So they were able to establish a really secure dating to the 15th century in general. Uh, a lot of articles have been reporting this as around 1450, mm-hmm. uh, give or take, but within the 15th century BCE for this potsherd. And also, y- you can't tell from this potsherd itself. Sometimes potsherds will become quite indicative with the rims and bases you can tell from which period they date this this pottery piece it's a body shirt so by that alone you can't specifically date it but it does have quite a good pattern on it and that that patterning shows it's what's known as a cypriot pottery fragment so so you can get a hint of dating from that but again it's primarily the 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 larger context of where they're excavating other pottery fragments and uh, organic remains that they can radiocarbon date to arrive at that dating. So a couple of things you said there I think were interesting. Uh, one, that you know this is the earliest use of an alphabetical or alphabet script. Um, just to, to pick our leaders, uh, readers up to speed or listeners up to speed, I suppose, there were obviously different writing forms of language, the Egyptians with the hieroglyphics, uh, cuneiform scripts written elsewhere, where you had, uh, well, basically, could you just describe how an alphabetical script uh, or language separates itself from those other forms? Sure. So these these other forms of language, you've got them going back as far as, let's say, uh, 3000 BCE. Uh, as you mentioned, hieroglyphic script, uh, 
cuneiform writing uh, in in the uh, in the Mycenaean uh, area. You've got the linear A, linear B script, and these are all quite complex pictographic scripts. So, uh, well, with the with the hieroglyphs, obviously they're 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 more pictorial uh, uh, type script. And uh, they're just more complex sort of figures that, that can have different meanings based on how they're used in different words. They can represent the thing that it depicts or it can represent a certain sound. And it all kind of changes and uh, it, it's sort of a little complex to, to, to explain in brief, but it sort of uh, changes based on the larger word itself, how it is used, where it is used. And, and for some of these scripts, you can have up to hundreds of different symbols. Probably the best, the best way to think of it is Chinese or Japanese, Korean. Uh, if you look at the world today, the majority of the world uses an alphabetic script. Okay, today you've got English, Greek, uh, the, the whole African continent now, uh, Arabic, Hebrew, they're all alphabetic scripts. So basically Russian. you're talking about a, a symbol that's used, or in this case, a letter, um, we would say, uh, in, our, in our modern terminology, that it denotes not necessarily an idea or a thing, but a sound. And right, that, that, that's all it is with the, uh, with the alphabetic script. What was so brilliant about it is that it would only be a, a, a short, a, a small amount of symbols, just each one representing a sim single sound. So you would have 22 letters as for the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, now it's two dozen, 26 for the English alphabet. Just a limited amount of symbols, each symbol having a specific sound rather than hundreds of different symbols or possible combinations that make all sorts of different sounds. And, and the thing that was so good about this new and developing script is that anyone could learn it. You, would, you didn't have to be brought up from a child specifically trained to be a scribe in this one really complex language. You could be a workman. You could be, as was the case in ancient Egypt and the Sinai Peninsula with the earliest alphabetic inscriptions. These belonged to slaves, slave people. You could be a slave and still have a usable working script uh, that, that you could readily learn and not have to dedicate your entire life to, to learning and to writing. So that was what was so brilliant about the, the alphabetic script and why uh, following its development into the Holy Land and from there branching out into Greece and from there branching out all over the world. That's why today you have, I think it's something like 70% of the world regularly using an alphabetic script is because it's such a brilliant way of writing. And something else you said was that the we tend to think of, speaking of the Bible and the ancient Israelites, that they spoke Hebrew and they wrote in Hebrew. Um, but what you said there is that this, as far as this ostracon goes, you didn't mention the language it was from, but said that they, all these languages in the Southern Levant, whether it's Phoenician or Hebrew, they're all very similar or that they, they could, they were transferable, I suppose. One, a Phoenician could read what an Israelite was writing. They were that similar. Is that correct? Right. That's exactly right. And, and as time goes on, you can start to see differences uh, appearing for example, with, with the Hebrew, you have the im plural ending, cherubim, 
uh, with Moabite, they had an in ending, I-N. So you, you start to see these slight differences that appear at, over time as cultures uh, enlarge and, and become more uh, separate and divided. Uh, but yeah, you do have this real center of this, as it's sometimes called, Hebrew script, Hebrew Phoenician script, Canaanitic script, Proto-Saniatic script is more the earlier form of it. Uh, but but often they're used interchangeably for this general region, and then from there it develops. So one more thing about the dating of this, which is very interesting, of course. People would be aware of uh, the most important document that's ever been recorded, uh, the Bible, of course, and even speaking about what was recorded but God's, uh, God's with God's own hand. Um, that event at Mount Sinai, and you've spoken about Sinai being some of the earliest, uh, one of the earliest places where you do find this script. And this date for the the Ostracon at Lachish around fourteen fifty. It's it's all in that same century that the Bible shows was when God was revealing Himself to the Israelites, these slave people that were coming out of Egypt, journeying for forty years in the wilderness in this region, then up to Canaan, and at that same time we have now more evidence of an alphabetic script in everyday use. And so I know that there have been plenty of people that have thought, well, well the Bible talks about, well, how could Moses have written the Bible when we, he didn't even have an alphabetical script to work with? And yet here we're starting to see evidence of exactly that. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, and Really, this this discovery points quite quite remarkably to to the biblical account as well. Again, I mentioned one of the general uh, opinions being that this this alphabet simply was brought in through through trade or something much later on, but into the Holy Land. But we see these the Semitic slaves using it in Egypt, the Sinai area, uh, around eighteen hundred onwards. We also see it associated with the Hyksos, who uh, you can read more about it on our website, Watch Jerusalem, but they are traditionally associated uh, with the Israelites themselves. The historian Josephus, first century historian, he comes straight out and says the Hyksos were the Israelites. So you have these, these various Israelite ties to this language uh, as it was as it was used in an Egyptian setting, similar to the one described in the Bible, uh, of where the Israelites went, what became of them, how they became slaves, and now we see it a lot earlier on than many scholars expected in the Holy Land as well, and that that also uh, has now been attributed to perhaps Hyksos influence carrying over into uh, into Canaan which is really interesting again, and what, what the researchers point out, they associate it with a Hyksos influence, again, uh, as, as Josephus points out, an Israelite uh, connection, but, but that's, that's still very much up for debate as to uh, who exactly the Hyksos were. But we do have an article that explains all of that in more detail. Uh, I believe it's called Evidence of the Exodus. You can find that on watchjerusalem.co.il. Uh, but but definitely with the script, we see a working script uh, that, that even the slaves could use. And there has been a little bit of debate that I read about today as to how the Israelites could have 
used a script like this uh, when they weren't necessarily high or, or, or lofty or trained individuals necessarily uh, in, this, in this script at that early time period and how an, a whole new alphabet could have developed from a slave class. And there's, there's a sort of uh, bias that any kind of development has to come from a, a high and mighty uh, expert, uh, top, top of the line class. And that's not necessarily the case, as, as one rebuttal to this argument said, that, that we put too much stock in only the, the, the most educated being able to come out with these developments. And actually, when you look at the script, it's really uh, born of necessity that, that you come out with uh, new developments and new inventions. And that seems to be the case with the script, a, a very simple, workable, uh, and yet brilliant script that, that anyone can use and which everyone today uses. Christopher Reams has an article at Watch Jerusalem. It's up right now. It's entitled Discovered, Earliest Alphabetic Script in Israel, Brand New Discovery of a Missing Link in the Alphabet, Predating the Next Earliest Levantine Alphabetic Script by Centuries. You should check this article out. It has some pictures of the Ostracon itself, uh, some of the, the script that was used by this scribe, I guess. I guess we could call him a scribe. He wrote something down, but perhaps, as you're saying, this might be something uh, that was far more readily accessible to the general public, this alphabetic script. Anything you'd like to add, Chris, before we let you go? Well, I guess uh, I forgot to mention exactly what the what the researchers think the script says. <laughs> That's probably uh, good to on, mention too. <laughs> on the on the ostracon, of course, uh, it's very fragmentary. It's it's some would say even not worth mentioning because it's it's so much guesswork because it's just so fragmentary. But they've suggested that the top line of script reads. Uh, Evid or slave or servant, as it's uh, typically translated to, uh, that may be a standalone word, or it may be part of a title. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of names, a lot of biblical names, have that element in it. Uh, so, slave possibly for the first line, and then for the second cutoff line, it may read the word nectar or honey. Uh, I think nefet or something or nofet. Is the uh, is the word, or it could be read the other way around as part of a, a longer name. That's the thing with this earliest script is that there's not necessarily yet a set way to read it. It could have been re read from left to right, could have been read from right to left. It it didn't so much become standardized. So again, that's another really interesting element to this really early alphabetic script is that you see it. Uh, sort of starting to materialize and then starting to be standardized over time, of course. And in the Levant, it, it became established as a, as a right-to-left language, and that spread out as such to the, to the Arabic uh, area. And then as it became adopted to, uh, by Greece and, um, and, and spread from there, they uh, adopted it as a left-to-right script, and that's what we continue to this day. So, so the, the script could be read any kind of way. We, we, we just don't know. Um, uh, but, but as far as we can postulate, it could be slave and then nectar or honey un written underneath that. Definitely some good points to include. Thank you very much for that, Chris. So again, if you'd like to read this article, go to watchjerusalem.co.il. 
It's called Discovered Earliest Alphabetic Script in Israel. We'll also leave a link to this article Chris has written in the show notes to today's program. Thanks very much, Chris. Thank you.